Welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Baseball Buds podcast. Today is July 17th. Today we will be going over the NL Central prospects, the risers, the fallers, but it is also coming up on the trade deadline, not only for the MLB, but for our Dynasty League. The trade deadline was today as of this recording. We're recording on Monday, July 17th. So we'll go over the trades that went down at our deadline, some hypothetical trades that we could see happening in actual MLB before August 1st, and then we'll break down the NL Central. But first, Matt, welcome in. How are you doing? How are you feeling? What's new? Yeah, man, we got uh, about two weeks until trade deadline, Major League um, Baseball. It's going to be August 1st, which is going to end up on a Tuesday. Um, I'm interested. You know, we got Otani on the burner right now, a bunch of... Um, publications talking about what would it take to get an Otani deal done, where is he going, and you have some new teams at the top of the competition leaderboards, right? Baltimore Orioles, Cincinnati Reds, also two teams that we have talked extensively about this off or this current season in regards to the prospects that they have moving up their ladders. So I'm very excited to see who gets moved at the deadline, where some of these big names fall. Uh, a little bummer, though, this week we did lose Shane Bieber with the elbow inflammation, and I think that was a, a big player in the pitching market that I was excited to see change uniforms. I don't think we will see that happen now. No, I mean, we're still waiting on the official status on what is wrong with his forearm, but it's never good. It reminds me of Frankie Montas with his shoulder injury before he got traded. I'm curious if Bieber comes back a little bit, does one start, and then gets traded just like Frankie Montas did. But let's jump right into the trades that happened at our deadline as they occur today. So there was a decent amount of trades. I was included in one. You were included in one. A few others. So let's just break down the very first one that happened leading up to the deadline. It was a team that is competing, Mavin Goose Danger Zone and the Quadrosaurus Hendersons, uh, interesting names, but Hendersons is not competing, Mavin Goose is making a push, Mavin Goose gave up Tyro Estrada and Joey Manessis, both controllable in our Dynasty League, they received Tristan McKenzie, Kyle Harrison, and Byron Buxton, Tristan McKenzie and Byron Buxton are expensive with expiring contracts, but Kyle Harrison is thrown in here, and if you're Mavin Goose, I, I think this is a no-brainer. You take this. You're winning at every facet. I'm just curious. The Hendersons pretty much just gave away a lot of valuable pieces for Joey Manessis and Tyro Estrada, who Tyro Estrada could be good, but he's injured. And Joey Manessis, I just see as a waiver wire guy, and he's just he's got no power. He'll hit for a good average, but at first base, that doesn't really do much for me. I'm curious what your initial thoughts are. Yeah, I really didn't understand the trade in general, um, but it was more or less adding Harrison to the deal. I felt like, from a just general perspective, that McKenzie by himself should have been able to get this done. Uh, Thyro's a nice player, but I think he's overhyped in the industry for what you get. Like He's kind of floating around the, the waiver wire um, status himself. I know that there was a huge production in, increase to start his year, but he has fallen off, and then there is the injury. Um, adding Harrison just didn't make any sense to me. He's in the PCL this year. This year, numbers are inflated. Strikeouts are still there, and in our league, pitching and especially pitching prospects are valuable. To go out and get a waiver wire first baseman, um, I, I I'm very confused by it. But uh, that is what trade the deadlines do. Sometimes they make deals happen that normally would not happen. Yeah, and keep Kyle Harrison in mind. A little bit of foreshadowing as we move along. Let's move to the next trade that occurred, and it was with me um, and my team. With The team name is now Hunt for Green October, but I give up Jacob Mizoroski, Wyatt Langford, and Jeffrey Springs. Mizoroski and Langford are both a dollar and very controllable. Jeffrey Springs, I think I have him for $6. So next year, he will be $11 with three years left, is recovering from Tommy John. I expect him to return probably around June, maybe July of next year. So you're missing out on a half year. 
but I receive Zach Wheeler, Juan Soto, and Colt Keith. Juan Soto is essentially a rental. He cannot be kept. There's no more contract left for him. Zach Wheeler has one more year left, but he is rather expensive at $39. I haven't really looked over the budget to see if he's even worth, even worth keeping. But the piece for me that really made it work was Colt Keith for a dollar. I received him. So not only did I get rentals to help me push for a championship, I also got a replacement in Colt Keith. And just for the listeners and for you, Matt, my reasoning was I had just picked up Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, Sebastian Walcott. I already had Jackson Churio. I had a plethora of riches, as I like to say, at the outfield position for prospects. So flipping Langford for Colt Keith at third base, I currently have Manny Machado, who's expensive. So get to roll the dice and hopefully Colt Keith can be worth something of keeper status once he reaches the bigs. Um I know you had some mixed feelings on this one. Just a, a quick breakdown on what you were thinking with this. Yeah, I'm I'm not a believer like you are in Springs. I was after the first few starts this year. But as I expressed to the owner that you traded with, you're talking about acquiring a guy that has undergone Tommy John surgery, has not given a proven track record in the major leagues of extensive innings. If you remember, Springs is coming out of the reliever role into a starting role. It has not built up those innings at the major league level. And my concern is after you have Tommy John, I want a guy coming back that has shown 170, 180, 200 innings so that I know that he can get back to that mark. So that I know that durability, while it was Tommy John, can probably give him that 10-year window we talk about Tommy John. And Springs is not that guy. He will be entering, I think, uh, age 31 or 32 season next year. So, you know, we talk about Verlander here a minute ago, 39 years old, had the Tommy John 38 maybe. Um, we, we can see it happen, but the problem with Springs is we don't have that longevity and that production on top of it. Colt Keith, I thought for you, was a great addition. Um, I'm pretty high on him. I think he has a pretty high floor, and, and I think he has top five third base upside in his prime. Only concern I have is that ballpark as well as that lineup. We need to have uh, Riley Green continue the success. Torkelson kind of continue to break through. He was on a nice little hitting streak. I have to check if he played today. Um, so I like Colt Keith. I would have preferred to give up Cruz in your position than Langford. I think in our point structure with uh, strikeouts not being a negative impact, Langford's the better player. Um, I think you went for the higher floor with Cruz and holding on to him. So, you know, that's just, you know, manager's choice. Um, and then Mizorowski, we've talked about it on the show. I've talked about it off the show. For me, he's only a reliever um, while he's starting right now. Was promoted to double A, which we'll talk about a little bit later. He is a relief pitcher. So uh, if he's a fireman relief pitcher, I think he's valuable in our format. I think he ultimately becomes the closer when Devin Williams leaves. But I don't think with that delivery and I don't think with that velocity he can stick in a rotation. Yeah, just to piggyback off of what you said, um, with Jeffrey Springs, the only caveat I'll say is I would normally worry about him with if he were to throw high heat but like his fastball sat 93 95 so he wasn't throwing 100 and he was mostly known for being a control pitcher so i think he will have the skills when he returns but there is the durability concern as always but it's not your normal hey noah Syndergaard used to throw 100 now he lost all his velocity and is a pumpkin Zorowski and Colt Keith, I find it interesting because we literally talked on the last podcast on how I almost made that deal and didn't. And here we are a week later and that deal has been made. I have different viewpoints on Jacob Mizorowski than you, but I don't want to get too far into the weeds on it as we are going over the NL Central and he is a riser for the Milwaukee Brewers. So we won't go too far in depth here. The one thing I will say with Wyatt Langford and why I gave him up over Dylan Cruz was for the power, you know, kind of high ceiling, low floor, I had Jackson Churio. So Dylan Cruz was like, you know, the peanut butter to jelly for Jackson Churio and Dylan Cruz, where if the same profiles with Langford and Churio are very similar in my mind, except for Churio's going to run where Langford is he'll still maybe 10, 15 bags. So that was the reasoning why I chose him to give up in a trade rather than Cruz. Now, let's move on to a trade you made, and it was with the trade we just talked about, and that was Kyle Harrison. You received Kyle Harrison. You give up Christian Javier. You are essentially out of the playoff hunt. I think there's a 1% chance that you make it. But curious for the listeners, what was your reasoning behind giving up Christian Javier? 
Yeah, I think the industry is very um, bounced back on Javier right now. I think everyone thinks he'll be fine and that he was really just fatigued, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But from my perspective, he's still a two-pitch pitcher. Um, the Astros in general are starting to see a slight decline. I think the big encouragement last year for having Javier was that he's playing on a team that was you know, going to pump out victories, going to put up good offensive numbers. And I'm just no longer a believer in Javier's ability to, to dominate the strikeout category. And that's just really going to impact his overall production for me within a points league for fantasy. You know, 7-1 on the season has really propped up his numbers as well, getting those wins. The question mark all year for me has been um, also durability, longevity, going deep into games is not something that he has been known for. And all of those things combined was going to pair with his price, which was going to be $17 going into next year. I just said I'm ready to cut loose. Uh, I think there is an absolute chance that if he continues to struggle in the second half, he ends up in the bullpen. Uh, I think they might have to reevaluate exactly what his role is with this team, being a two-pitch pitcher who has lost velocity. Uh, and I think it's 1.2 miles per hour on his fastball, which is quite a bit when you're talking about only a 95, uh, I think it was 95-mile-an-hour fastball down to 93 now. Um, I'm just ready to walk away from it. I also roster Hunter Brown as well as Valdez. So having three Astros on my team really kind of limits my double starts from a week-to-week perspective. Going into next year when things change, I also wanted to acquire Harrison and have for quite a while. Um, but what this really did for me was it, it kind of put it in, in place and into cement that I have all of the pitching prospects outside of Yuri Perez. Um, and, I, and I think going into next year, I'll be able to have a little flexibility after the draft to maybe make some moves and acquire some talent with those pitching prospects. You have definitely cornered the market on pitching prospects in the past few weeks. I will give you that. Let's move on now to another trade that I made, and I give up Mason Black, and I receive Lords Gurriel Jr. So this deal was uh, in the 11th hour, literally 30 minutes before the trade deadline. And this was essentially me trying to get some outfield depth where I could get it. I was scrambling. I lost Eloy. He's at least out for the next four to five days with growing tightness. I don't like that. I did acquire Juan Soto, which we mentioned earlier, but I was still down um, a third outfielder. So going and getting Lords Gurriel, he added the depth that I needed. He's nothing overly great, but having a good season, 270, 15 home runs, I'll take it. He is definitely a better option than what's out there on the waiver wire currently for our team. I give up Mason Black, who you and I are very fond of, has a good repertoire, two good pitches, or two plus-plus pitches in this fastball slider. Had a great first stint in AAA, five innings, eight earned, or eight strikeouts, not, not eight earned, but zero earned um, runs given up. So definitely a lower move any comments on that before we move on to the final trade before the deadline yeah it was interesting that you were able to move black um i'm i'm not really high on black at least from a major league perspective i think there's a lot of talent coming from the pitching side for the giants and while black's doing well i have my question marks for him at the pro level um but again deals happen at the at the deadline where teams don't expect to keep players you know we saw that with Gurriel, we saw that with Justin Turner, who we'll talk about in a minute here. Um, and for me, I looked at it like a flyer for the league, the manager that acquired Black. And why not? You know, you never know if he comes up and has a nice little spark. You don't know if in spring training next year they're talking about him as the fifth uh, starting pitcher. So I understand it. It's, it's just another one of those trades that a team that's out of it, why not make? Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of foreshadowed, but the last trade that was made was Justin Turner for Micabell. A uh, team also competing, New York Strikeout Exchange, acquired Justin Turner and gave up Micabell. Um, and on the surface, I was just like, yeah, it's whatever. Micabell hasn't been doing that great. Justin Turner's just a guy. But and when you look at Justin Turner's numbers, he's actually done better than I thought he has, batting 291. He's got 14 homers on the season, 56 RBIs, 58 runs, pretty solid across the board. In our league, 3.6 per game he is averaging. Pretty much anything over three is pretty pretty good. Um, I'd say is three is average. I'd say 3.5 is above average. Four, you're talking about pretty good players. So 3.6 is pretty good. Um, third base and first base eligibility. So not a terrible haul, for, especially for a struggling pitcher. What were your thoughts, Matt? So you think Micah Bell is struggling, huh? 
based on what I saw at the Futures game, I did not like what he's done with his command. I'm pulling out, I want to pull up his most recent numbers here. Let's take a look here. Do you already have it? All right, so 475 ERA, uh, 60 innings, 70 strikeouts, whip of a 130. Look at last 10 games. Last 10 games, he's got a 491 ERA at double A. The thing I don't like is you look at his last few game logs um, three walks, three walks, two walks, three, four, four, three, five. And he's only going five or six innings. So you're walking almost a batter per inning. Maybe, I mean, you're, you're almost at three, four walks per nine. That's not a good walk to strikeout ratio by any means. He gave up nine on May 12th. He gave. Uh, I'm looking at in like uh, overall uh, games to see if there are blow up games in here. Yeah, the nine on May 12th doesn't look good for him. The six on May 26th doesn't look good for him. Uh, and then June 29th is the last start that he has. Um, walks, just, are, walks are uh, definitely a concern. Um, I also just didn't like what I saw out of him at the the futures game it didn't look outside of his fastball didn't like he had much command of any of his secondaries and where they were going they were all out of the zone there was some where the catcher had to stand up and reach block them in the dirt yeah you can't gauge anyone on the yeah i know game, but you know it's it's an inning they're all I, amped up like you can't gauge anything outside of velocity and and maybe movement you know like we talk about miserowski performed nicely because we saw the movement but you know immediately went back and had four walks the next start so it's like oh he looked great but then he looked bad um you gotta take the good with the bad absolutely i think mickabell i think mickabell's a top 15 pitcher at his prime um i think philly hurts him significantly much like it hurts wheeler much like it hurts nola um so i, th I think what we're gonna have to see is a bell on a different team come age 28 29 uh, but velocity is there, 98. It is a straight fastball. Uh, there's a little tilt to it, so that's a concern as well. He, you know, he's still young at 21 years old, has the leverage at 6'5". Uh, there's a lot I like about Abel, but I, I think what we're looking at here is someone similar to Keller, where we're going to watch this guy come up and just struggle for two or three years because of the ballpark factors, because of the divisional factors. You're going up against the uh, Atlanta Braves a lot. You're going to be going against the Mets a lot. You're going to be going up against a good Washington Nationals team with James Wood and Dylan Cruz. I think this is just a disadvantage for him for, for where he fell. But to give this up for Justin Turner um, in a league where you know young pitching is, is so important, especially for a team that's con contending like this manager was, to me, it was just a really bad deal. Um, I, well, know. I guess if you put it in context of the Kyle Harrison owner uh, acquired a Christian Javier compared to a Mika Bell for Justin Turner. Yeah, it's a, I mean, you know, it's it's all context with that. And and I think more importantly, this was a conversation I had with a different league manager today in, in regards to what this manager that traded a Bell away is, is looking at down the future. Um, you know, you, you give up your young depth while you have high aging players of, of dollar value with Max Scherzer and Clayton Kershaw, both of which you have to assume will not be on that team next year. And if they are, it's a really big salary um, hit. So you want guys like Abel to be able to offset that salary to look forward to. And I think when you're talking about having Abel, I think you wait five months in this offseason. You can probably get a lot more than Justin Turner for Abel. And is Justin Turner really going to offset a Juan Soto Zach Wheeler trade? No, he's not. Like he's just going to be there as an extra bat. So it was just like when you think about roster construction and you talk about Lotus Gurriel. I don't look at Turner any differently than I look at Gurriel. And I think Abel. Uh, I think Abel has a lot more upside than Black. So just really I would agree with there. Yeah. I would agree there. All right, that was all the deals that went down before the deadline. I was on the verge of making another deal, but we ran out of time. I almost acquired either Cedric Mullins or Christian Yelich. Um, on the surface, the last point we were at was I was giving up Emmett Sheehan, uh, Trevor Story, and either Frankie Montas or Mason Miller. Um, I could have done that deal for Cedric Mullins. Um, but I was really pushing to get Christian Yelich, and the owner was pleased with 
the results that Christian Yelich has done since the All-Star break, which didn't help my chances of landing him. I did have an offer come in about a week or two ago for Reed Detmers and Luis Severino when I had him on my team for Christian Yelich that was sitting in my inbox. Um, but just curious, Matt, if I would have made either one of those three trades, what would your thoughts have been? Would it have been worth it for me? So Detmers for Yelich? That, yeah, pretty much because Luis Severino I ended up dropping. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point, um, yeah, I would have done that deal. I mean, you know, Detmers has flashed the upside within, you know, periods and pockets of time. Um, but he just hasn't been consistent for you. Um, you've acquired some pitching depth. I think you could yeah, probably. Yeah, but at the time, I didn't have the pitching depth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it was, yeah, it was a while ago that I did that too. So Yelich hadn't caught his heater yet either. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, he's been fantastic lately. I, I mean, personally, that's a move I would make, but you haven't, you, you think highly of Detmers, you know? And um, I think what's going to happen with Detmers probably is what happens with a lot of the guys we like is it's going to get to a point where he's priced out or you make a move. And, and then, then we they see him finally catch fire, figure it out. Yeah. Find consistency. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, that's just the nature of the game. All right, enough of trades that went down in our Dynasty League. Let's move on to real MLB, MLB teams. We, we, I've got a list of six selling teams and six potential buying teams. And these are pretty much the biggest rumors on the market. I think the two biggest sellers here are the Chicago White Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals. I got a long list here, but the White Sox have Lucas Giolito, Lance Lynn, Liam Hendricks, Tim Anderson, Mike Clevenger all on the chopping block. And those are just ones that I'm aware of. It sounds like Luis Robert, um, Eloy Jimenez, and Dylan Cease are untouchable. At least that's what the White Sox have made clear. The St. Louis Cardinals, they're looking at moving Lars Newbar, Brendan Donovan, Paul DeYoung, Jordan Montgomery, Jordan Hicks, Jack Flaherty, and possibly even Goldie and Arenado. Then we move on to the Chicago Cubs. They're looking to move Marcus Stroman, Cody Bellinger, Kyle Hendricks, and possibly others. Cleveland Guardians we had on this list, but Shane Bieber's injured. I'm not sure if they're really going to sell anymore. And a surprise one, the New York Mets might be sellers. They've been struggling recently. Could be moving Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Daniel Robertson, Tommy Pham, Mark Hanna, Carlos Carrasco. The list goes on and on. And then lastly, the Detroit Tigers. The main ones that have been rumored are Eduardo Rodriguez and Michael Lorenzen could give pitching depth to some of the buying teams we have. So, Matt, before we get into the buying teams, what are your initial thoughts on these selling teams? And do you think which one of these players, if not all of them, do you think get traded at the deadline? Yeah, I think now that the Brewers you know, just took the series with the Reds, takes Burns out of the equation, I think he will be staying in Milwaukee for a postseason push. I would look for Milwaukee to add uh, hitters, right? Don't see Woodruff or Burns probably being traded. So that takes away a really big option on the market, and that option being ultimately a number one pitcher. If the New York Mets choose not to trade Scherzer and Verlander with the injury to Shane Bieber, as you just mentioned with these names, you have a bunch of mid-tier to plus mid-tier players, right? Stroman probably being the most consistent on this list that I like the most, followed in suit by guys that have high variance. You're talking about Giolito and Lynn as well as Jack Flaherty, all names that I think can aid a team and possibly in the right environment pitch above their performance currently. But I think the Mets are the big indicator here. If they're willing to trade Scherzer and Verlander, which I think they fully should be, they have money tied up, they have a good farm system as it is, you could only bolster that farm system, get cheaper so that Cohen can go out and spend money like he has already and really surround this team with a great foundation you're going to have to do it by trading Scherzer and Verlander. So I really hope to see the New York Mets go ahead and pull the trigger on some of these deals. I think it's the right time. I think they have the pieces in play to compete next year if they're willing to make these deals as these two pitchers are aging. If the Mets are not trading players, I think this market is diluted with mid-tier pitchers. I think we could see Giolito and Flaherty and Lynn um, – and Stroman moved for pieces that otherwise they wouldn't be able to be moved for. Maybe B-level prospects, maybe even a plethora of C-level prospects. And obviously the one name not listed is Otani. I think that will also dictate a lot of the moves that are made. Yeah, it'll be interesting because 
the Los Angeles Angels, as it stands right now, I think are seven games back from the division, but they're only like I think less than like two or three games from the wild card. So they still have a chance. So it literally could come down to what happens over the next few weeks. Do they go on a heater? What happens? But let's move on now to the buying teams. The first one that I have on here is the Baltimore Orioles. We've been hyping it. Cincinnati Reds at, Reds at number two. I think the third biggest buyer is going to be the Texas Rangers. Then we're looking at some lower level buyers, the New York Yankees, LA Dodgers, and possibly even the Seattle Mariners. I've heard some rumors about Logan Gilbert to the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm not really sure how that would make sense. I feel like that's the Mariners almost selling off, but maybe they get some bats and they believe in their pitching depth. Who knows, maybe they even trade Logan Gilbert and get a Jack Flaherty and a Lars Newbar or something along the lines of that. I don't know, but curious, Matt, if you're one of these teams, let's say, let's just say you're the Baltimore Orioles, which one of these pitchers are you looking to acquire the most? Are you going for Scherzer or Justin Verlander? Or are you going for maybe somebody who's hot right now, like a Marcus Stroman? Well, it all depends, too, in, in what the asking price is, right? If you're taking on Verlander, you're taking on a high-end salary. Same thing with Scherzer. I think they both have two years on their deals, $43 million, if I am correct, each year. If I'm Baltimore, that in itself is going to say to me, I, my price tag for what I'm giving you back is going to be a little bit less because I'm having to foot the buck on the contract that you signed this player to. Um, I, I think Baltimore needs to acquire a frontline ace. If you think about it right now, John Means should be coming back in the next month, month and a half. That is their ace outside of Grayson Rodriguez, who has just recalled, and that's just not good enough to get it done in the postseason. So if you go ace, you have to go all in. I would go for Verlander over Scherzer because Scherzer has had continuous injuries to end his seasons over the last three seasons. And if you don't go ace, I would go with a plethora of guys, and that would be the Chicago White Sox. I'd leverage Giolito, Lynn, and Hendricks. You know, Hendricks could slide into that setup man role or that seventh inning role with Cano obviously holding down the eighth already and Bautista in the ninth. You bring in Giolito and you bring in Lynn. You hope the park factor in Baltimore really helps Lynn bring down that ERA. And then Giolito should be the stable guy that can pitch in your 2-3 slot. But I don't think at the end of the day – the Mets move Verlander or uh, JV, which is really unfortunate. And I think what's going to happen is Baltimore is going to be able to give up some of these B-tier prospects, go out and get some pitching. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to rely on Grayson Rodriguez. I watched a little bit of that game. He was cruising through four. He ends up with a final line of five innings, seven hits, four earned runs, two walks, four strikeouts. He had only had one earned run, and I think he pitched into the sixth inning and didn't even get through one out, and that's when he got pulled and gave up those final three earned runs. So he did okay. It was against the Dodgers, so I'm curious to see how he he performs his next start is Saturday against the Tampa Bay Rays, which is not the easiest task, but definitely an important matchup against the division leader, Tampa Bay Rays. That's going to be a deciding series this weekend and what happens. Um, there's, I think that pretty much covers all of our potential trade teams and selling teams. Let's move on now to the NL Central and we'll go over some risers and fallers for each of the teams. We'll start with the Chicago Cubs. We've got three risers here, and they're pretty. They're rising up prospect rankings pretty quickly. All three of them. First one, Cade Horton, possibly the best pitching prospect outside of Paul Skeens. Then we have Ben Brown, who's been a welcome surprise, and then Pete Crow Armstrong, who I didn't really believe in before the season, but he's come along rather nicely this year. Matt, what are you seeing these guys? Yeah, Cade Horton's the one that just really surprises me you and i had kind of joked last year when he was drafted i my question was what are they doing this is a two-way player that just recently switched over to pitching when he came out of the draft uh Cade coming from oklahoma played a little bit of third base pitched in his final year before he was drafted taken seventh overall i just assumed the development was going to take a while i assumed what you were going to have is a guy not really understanding his pitch mix really trying to find location and a guy that could see the majors at 25, 26 out of college, and I was just completely wrong. Um, he has taken to pitching like it's, you know, a job he's done his entire life. 
Kate Horn on the year, 13 games, 53 innings, 78 strikeouts, a whip of 1.02, and an ERA of 3.19. Um, I was lucky enough to pick him up in our Dynasty League, more or less just because at that point I said, why not? Let's see what happens. And I've, I've reaped the rewards of that, and I think Kate Horton might be the best pitcher in this organization right now. Ben Brown, which we'll talk about in a minute here, has upside as well, but I think uh, Brown's upside is out of a number three. I think what we're seeing of Horton is a number one in the rotation, and we have room to grow because, again, he has not been in this position for an extended period of time where we really can project what his ceiling is at this point. Uh, I really like the fastball. I think secondary stuff is also at a plus already, even though it hasn't fully been, been developed. And I think the park factor in Chicago is going to really help Horton. And as well, he fits the timeline that Chicago's you know, moderate rebuild has brought to um, the, the minor league system. Love Horton. Don't love Brown as much. I think Brown, again, number three pitcher. Um, I think I really like the leverage, and I think we could see projectability down the road for him. I think he could, as he hits the majors, continue to develop and get better. And then Pete Crow Armstrong is just going to uh, aid both of these guys. Pete Crow Armstrong being the number one outfield uh, out defensive prospect in the minor leagues. I think we have an 80 grade on his fielding. Um, this is going to be a guy that platoons center field for years to come, and I think that's another reason why they're also willing to move on from Cody Bellinger is because they have Pete Crow Armstrong. Now, I would like to see Bellinger stay. I, I think that also helps the defense as well, and I think he's playing really well in Chicago, and I think those fans have taken to him. So depending on what the Cubs do at the deadline could really um, impact their roster next year, but I would love to see Pete Crow Armstrong as well as Bellinger in that outfield. It would be a plus-plus defensive outfield. Yeah, Pete Crow Armstrong's got a little bit more pop, a little more power than I thought. I thought he'd maybe be a 5-15 to 15 homer guy, but has 10 home runs on the year already, batting two seventy seven at double A. So, I mean, he's on pace for maybe 15, 20 home runs, which is higher than I thought. You add in the defense, he's going to be playing every day. Ben Brown has struggled a little bit since moving to AAA, or at least more recently. But Kate Hortman, I think, I mean, as he develops, I think he has the potential to have the best stuff or the best repertoire out of all the pitchers in the minor leagues. Let's move on now to some fallers. And the first one is somebody I was very surprised that has struggled, and that's Matt Mervis. He actually came up. In a little stint um, with Chicago, he had a 167 in 27 games, got sent back down. He's looking like a quad A player, reminds me a lot of Joe Adele. And then we move on, Brennan Davis and Kevin Alcantara, all prospects that are falling. Before I turn it over to you, Kevin Alcantara was somebody that got picked up in our Dynasty League and then dropped. And I was actually a little upset that he got picked up because I thought he was a player that could make an ascension like not saying Jackson Churio level, but something a little bit less where he really pops up on radars of prospect um, industry people or analysts across the board. And he just hasn't done that. He does have okay average at 269, but only nine home runs. I was expecting him to be closer to 20, maybe 30. He does get a 55 grade power. So it is slightly above average, but He's only 21 years old, still young, still could rise up, but he's a faller for me. So, Matt, those are my quick takes. What are your thoughts on these? Yeah, Alcantara has had issues with leverage. Uh, strikeouts, he just hasn't tapped into the potential that I think we were hoping for when the Cubs essentially brought him into the organization and signed him. And that was just something I saw from the very beginning when you talked about when that uh, manager picked him up. You were, ex you were kind of disappointed because you were excited for the possibility of having him on your team. I've never been in on Alcantara. The The Cubs decided to go high exit velo, um, high potential, and very low floor with both Davis and Alcantara. And I just, from the beginning, I saw issues with that that profile for both of them. Davis, on the other hand, has more or less fought injuries his entire minor league career, whereas Alcantara just has looked overmatched most of the time. So Alcantara is 21, though, right? He'll be, he'll be turning 22. Um, looks like November he just, 2nd. Yes, Oh, Alcantara, oh, no. like, Alcantara I got just Davis turned up. 21. So, Sorry about um, that. He's still young, and, and I think there's opportunity, as you said, but 6'6 six, six frame. You know, there's a lot of leverage. There's a lot of holes there as well to, to really be t uh, taken advantage of. I think I will give him until this time next year to really kind of leave the grade out there. Um, Alcantara, I'm still open on. Davis, I'm sold on. I, I don't think Davis will ever be what he was supposed to be in this league. 
And that is kind of unfortunate. You're talking about a second round pick, 62nd overall. You know, he's been in the minor leagues now for five seasons. I, I think the I think the ship has sailed for Davis. Yeah, he's 23 already at AAA. I mean, he's still he's only betting 197. Yeah. I'm out on Brennan Davis. I never really liked him to begin with, if I'm being honest. Never had the hit tool for me. All right, let's move on to the Cincinnati Reds, our beloved team that we love to talk about on this podcast. And for the sake of this, we're going to avoid the players that have already come up and already ascended, like the CESs, the Andrew Abbotts, the Ellie De La Cruzes. There is still one that has risen, and that is Novi Marte. But there's also two other guys that have risen in the lower ranks, and that's Carlos Jorge and Hector Rodriguez. And I really like Hector Rodriguez, but I just don't know where he plays whenever he comes up. Carlos Jorge, he's got a good average, but I'm curious, which one of these three do you like, let's say, in 2026? Which one of these do you like the most? It's easy. Um, I think the best prospect left in this organization is undoubtedly Carlos Jorge. Seven home runs, 28 stolen bases, a 389 on base percentage, batting 285 this season in A ball. I think Jorge is, uh, I have him as a star designation um, in my top 100. I think Carlos Jorge is easily top five second baseman within two years of being in the majors. And I think we're talking about a decade long um, Jose Altuve type player here. 19 years old. So, you know, he's still very young, only at A ball, but all of the uh, projection sites have him as a top five player in baseball, let alone second base. So I think what we're talking about here is his numbers playing up at the level, but the projections are really looking at him and saying, okay, the stolen bases are there. The on-base percentage is there. You're talking about about a guy that's probably going to hit 15 to 20 home runs in his peak. Again, it just sounds like a young Altuve. Um, And if this kid can really kind of play into that power within Cincinnati, talking about an elite level player problem is as you said with Hector Rodriguez where does Jorge play with Matt McClain Spencer Steer Ali De La Cruz and uh, Marte we just talked about Marte like there's a big log jam but I think my number one um, priority would be Ali De La Cruz my number two priority undoubtedly would be Carlos Jorge you're talking about two individuals that could be perennial all-stars in the the middle of this lineup as well as the uh, infield very excited about Jorge yeah, I'm, I mean, I let, maybe just the production so far, but I really like Hector Rodriguez over Carlos Jorge, just been putting it together. He's a little bit smaller at 5'8", but you know I like me them short guys. Um, but he's betting 302 is the teammate to Carlos Jorge. He's got 14 home runs already this year um, compared to just three that he had last year across four different levels. Um, I mean, either way, in three four years these guys are going to be studs and honestly i think one if not both of these guys could be traded for some pitching depth for the reds if they're really serious about buying this year yeah even i i i I hope they don't trade either of these guys you know novel Marte, i think is is the number one candidate that i would be willing to move because your infield set for let's just say two two three years right like infield's done ces at first um, you have India at second if they don't move him. You have McLean at short, and you have De La Cruz at third. Like you got to give this infield a little bit of time to develop itself before you even think about Marte. And if Marte plays outfield, sure, there's an option, right? But I would really like them to move some of the names we're about to talk about or Marte um, because I still think there's a little bit of value in the guys that we're about to talk about. I think very shortly, this time next year, that value may be gone. Yeah, that's true. So let's move on to some fallers. The first one is Edwin. Wow, can't talk. Edwin Arroyo. He's a shortstop, the number two in their system, followed by Cam Collier, the first round pick for them last year, and then Austin Hendrick at high A, 22 year old outfielder. Edwin Arroyo has had a very down season so far this year, only batting 231 at high A. He has eight home runs. 73 strikeouts to only 26 walks so don't like that there but he's only 19 at high A, so he's still a little bit young a lot of the industry is still high on him maybe just from regular baseball perspective he's got good defense but cam collier is the one that's very disappointing for me he was the 18th overall pick last year and i just thought i mean he was high coming out of high school so he's only 18 he's at low a but he's only betting 212 
He's got four home runs, and he was really known for his hit tool, but also with developing power. He's got a big frame. I'm trying to get the yeah, 6 2, 210. So he's got the projectability to hit for power. And just the fact that he's not hitting for it is cause for concern for me. I really thought he'd be exploding by this time. Um, and then the last one, Austin Hendricks, um, just batting 205 this year, but does have 14 stolen bases. So. Yeah, I mean, they could easily move Edwin Arroyo or Austin Hendricks, but, I mean, which one of these guys do you like long-term most? Um, I mean, I'm out on Hendricks. I didn't like the pick in 2020. I, I thought from a, a bat perspective, a contact perspective, there was a lot of concerns there. And it's just come to fruition in the minor leagues. I mean, the kid's 22 years old is at high A. You're talking about 24, 25 before he maybe hits the big leagues. With Collier, I do want to remind ourselves, you know, Brady House had similar struggles. We're seeing what Brady House is doing this year at 18. He was a young draft pick at 17. So I think there's a lot of time for Collier. I think there's also a lot of time for for other teams to view him under the same light, which gives him value in trades, as well as we just talked about where does he play in the next seven to eight years for the Reds. Um, and then Arroyo, Arroyo is really concerning because if you look at his numbers before the trade from Seattle last year, he had 87 games at a ball for them, 13 home runs and batted 316. That is really encouraging hitting environment as well. Um, after the trade, he really struggled 27 games. He was only able to hit one home run and batted 227. We're starting to see the same kind of impact this year with 231. I think at high A, Arroyo might be overmatched for the age, but also being concerns with you know switching organizations. But Hendricks is definitely the guy that I think I'm out on. I'm not sure they can really get anything for him at this point. Yeah, talk about a bust. All right, let's move on now to our beloved Milwaukee Brewers. And we've got a handful of risers for you. We've got Carlos Rodriguez, starting pitcher at AA. Jacob Mizoroski, who will go a little bit more in depth compared to the beginning of the show. Jefferson, Jefferson Cuero, who also accompanied Jacob Mizoroski at the Futures game. And then Tyler Black, who has been absurd with his stolen bases. So Matt, I'll let you kick it off. Yeah, AA is going to be really exciting. Uh, Mizoroski getting the promotion today, as you had mentioned earlier. So you have Rodriguez, you have Mizoroski, and you have Cuero all at AA. I think what's more important is that Cuero has been catching Rodriguez. He will now be catching Mizoroski. I would expect Cuero to be the catcher of the future for Milwaukee, um, maybe moving Contreras into more of a DH role, possibly moving Contreras completely to first base since that's a glaring hole for Milwaukee, and there isn't really a replacement in the system currently. And then Tyler Black, you're talking about a third baseman, outfielder, second base, really high-end utility availability there betting 273, but more importantly, a 422 on base percentage. That is the number that really sticks out with the stolen bases. He's on base. He's stealing bags. He's creating. One of the most important things Milwaukee needs right now is the creation of runs with a 508 slug. What we're seeing with Black is someone that you know was a hitter out of school, was not necessarily the stolen base guy. We're starting to see skills improve. And I'm really excited for Tyler Black. I talked about Carlos Jorge a little bit earlier and you know my high expectations for him. I think Tyler Black could be this very sneaky top seven, top eight second baseman in fantasy baseball for years to come that doesn't necessarily jump off the page for you but does everything well. And I think he will play in Milwaukee. I think they will move him around the diamond if he doesn't stick at second base. Just very exciting for Milwaukee. Carlos Rodriguez has been a huge riser this year, five and three. Uh, 16 games started, 77 innings, 103 Ks. What I really like is the innings are already up there. You're looking at a guy that could slide into this rotation come next year at 21 years old, has a 117 whip within uh, 183 average against. Rodriguez has had a very, very nice season. Yeah, absolutely. And with Jacob Mizoroski, like you preluded to in the earlier segment was in his last start he went four innings gave up three walks four strikeouts so don't like the control but I do think he has some of the best stuff to match with Kate Horton who we mentioned earlier just comes down to can he handle a, a workload of a starter looking at his game log and I didn't realize this most of his outings are only four innings I'm only seeing one five and a third one five and the rest are all three or four innings so 
that is a little concerning. Maybe they're just being careful with him knowing his velocity and just knowing what he's, his workload has been in the past. Just looking last year, he only pitched one and two thirds, but that was the year he was drafted. So I don't know what his workload was in college. But Tyler Blackman, the 42 stolen bases, that's absurd. I just love that. I mean, the Brewers love getting these guys that can hit. Sal Frelick, who is on our fallers, but he's got the hit tool, not so much power. So they're getting a good blend of everything. So let's well, move on. To, well, and, oh, go ahead. And the last thing I was going to say, with the promotion today of Mizorowski, and this is a conversation I had uh, with a, a league mate of ours today, I think they're fast-tracking him to the bullpen. I mean, it's double A, it's July, give him a month, you know, in double A, you know, see how he does. If we don't see his innings extended immediately to five, pushing him six innings a game, I think he's up in September and I think he's anchoring this bullpen. Um, You know, you could see it. You're talking about 50 innings so far. So projectability, let's just say he has five starts at double A of five innings. So 25 more innings, right? That's 75 innings on the year you're probably pushing him to 100. He's in Milwaukee's bullpen. Like, if Milwaukee doesn't go out and acquire pitching, it's Mizorowski coming up in September. He's going to be the guy that's going to have Freddie Peralta allowed five innings, Mizorowski two innings, and then close it down. So really interested to see what they're going to do the rest of the season with him. I think within the next month, we will know what Milwaukee wants to do with him as an organization. Yeah, I mean, if he's moved up to AAA here in the next two, three, even four starts, or he starts moving into a bullpen roll like that, I could definitely see it. All right, let's move on to some fallers here. And one was, the first one is Sal Frelick. It's more so injury-related. He just hasn't produced since coming back, batting 235 overall, 229 at AAA alone. Then we have Eric Brown Jr., who was a first-round draft pick, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, our 2022 first-round draft pick hasn't really produced much at high A, only batting 266, which isn't terrible. Only three home runs, so I don't like to see that. And then we have Ethan Small, who was did have a stint at the majors, I think it was last year, and didn't do that hot. And he even came up this year, pitched three innings, but had a 15 ERA. He's doing okay so far at AAA, but it's the fact that he hasn't progressed when that was his timeline, he should have been up this year and providing, at least by my standards, I thought he'd be. He's 26. It was a first-round draft pick in 2019. Has above-average stuff. It's just a matter of he has no idea where it's going. So, Matt, which one of these has fallen the most for you? Um, It's definitely Salas. Salas being a relief pitcher now. You know, 26 innings, two starts Wait. this season, eight games. Who are you talking games. about, Salas? Salas. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Ethan Ethan Small, my apologies. Oh, you're good. Um, Salas is not falling by any means. He (laughs) is rising. We will talk about him at the you know end of the season. But uh, Ethan Small just just didn't work out, right? First round pick out of Mississippi State, turned into a reliever. Just doesn't have the velocity. um, Doesn't necessarily have a role in this bullpen either because he's not a high velocity guy. So definitely disappointing there. But I, I think from a draft perspective, Eric Brown's pick last year just had me scratching my head. I didn't understand why Milwaukee was adding another middle infielder. I didn't understand why they were adding a college middle infielder. Just some of the names taken right after Brown. Drew Gilbert out of Tennessee taken immediately after with the 28th pick by the Astros. We're seeing Gilbert rise this year. Taking 29th overall, Xavier Isaac. Absolutely flying up boards for his projectability for the Rays. This is a first baseman. This was taken out of high school. What is one of the biggest needs for the Milwaukee organization is first base. They chose yet again Eric Brown, who's going to waste his time at the minor league level. A couple other names. You have Jordan Beck out of Tennessee for the Rockies, who we absolutely love and have been talking about all season. You have Dalton Rushing out of Louisville, 40th overall to the Dodgers. I just don't understand why they took Eric Brown. I guess um, I didn't realize all those names. Yeah, I knew Drew Gilbert because we talked about how he went literally the pick after. And then was Sterling, that? that was twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. And then Sterling Thompson, also Rockies, Florida, thirty one overall. Was they that in the comp comp pick? Yeah. Okay. Um. So they t- they Jay chose Brown, right? Let's just take the guy that's going to well, hit two forty and at, play defense. You also got to look at um, signability too. Yeah, but you I mean, know. if you but if you look at you look at the names I just mentioned, they were all college outside of Isaac. Like, 
they were gonna sign right Thompson out of uh, out of Florida right yeah, that's talk true. about Dalton rushing out of Louisville you talk about Beck out of Tennessee like all college names Gilbert out of Tennessee like they were all they all had no oh, choice. Robbie Snelling too <laughs> well in Snelling High School that's that's a signability guy right like yeah Thomas Harrington. He it's was... it's frustrating to look back, and and obviously you're looking back with hindsight. But like we're talking about, you know, B if not A chip players, Gilbert possibly being an A, Thompson and Beck pushing that A classification. Isaac has an A but could be a C, right? We he's a high school bat, like first base bat especially. Um, I just don't understand why they chose Eric Brown. It, it's it's still frustrating to me, but um, yeah. So Brown's falling for me, but you know, at 22, I, I think what we're talking about is utility bat. I think it's time for you to go to scout school and fix these organizations, Matt. <laughs> yeah, let me get paid $35,000 a year. I'm very hey, excited for that. It's better than nothing. Let's move on now to the Pittsburgh Pirates. We've got some risers here. The first one on the list is Anthony Solomato. He has been risen. He's actually now, I believe, on the top 100 of MLB Pipeline. I think he's in the top one. If not, he's on somebody's top 100 that I've looked at recently. But in A. He's thrown 2.37 ERA over 19 innings since being promoted, 21 strikeouts, so just over an inning or strikeout per inning. Wow, can't talk. Um, He was a second-round draft pick in 2021, only 20 years old. We also have Jared Jones. Um, He's at AAA. He was a second-round draft pick in the 2020 COVID draft. He's got an above-average fastball. He's done pretty well so far this year, but has struggled since moving to AAA. Um, at double A, he went 44 in the third innings with a 2.23 ERA, 47 strikeouts, so also above a strikeout per inning. But at triple A, 24 and a third, 30 strikeouts, but a 5.18 ERA. Nonetheless, he is still a riser for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then lastly, there was a, a flurry of promotions that they had, but I was torn between Henry Davis and Nick Gonzalez. Um, since they did come up to the MLB, they got promoted. Um, I mean, Nick Gonzalez has kind of cooled off a little bit. He had a, a decent stretch to start, but batting 246, fared okay so far in the majors. Henry Davis has held his own, batting 271 since being promoted. So, Matt, I'm curious what your thoughts are on Henry Davis and Nick Gonzalez long term since they are currently up in the majors, but we are talking about them since they were recently promoted. Yeah, I mean, I think Davis has the higher upside, obviously, being the number one overall pick in his draft. Gonzalez, we've talked a little bit at length with him with New Mexico State, had a lot of uh, projectability, but also had to look at the altitude that he was playing at. Um, Davis, for me, is the guy that could be the all-star. He's the guy that should be the leader of this organization. You know, you talk about Ellie De La Cruz being the superstar in Cincinnati. I think Henry Davis is going to be the guy in Pittsburgh, probably not nearly the same superstar uh, potential as Ellie. But there, there is the ability for him to lead this organization. And I think you look at what the way that Pittsburgh's really choosing to develop their organization now. Anthony Salamedo, Skeens, and then you have Mitch Keller. You have a 1-2-3 in this rotation, projectable. And I think that's the most exciting thing. I think Jones probably ends up in the bullpen, maybe as the number five, uh, high in velocity. But there's also a lot of variance with that as well. Um, and then, you know, we have a, a faller in Andy Rodriguez, but... This was a guy that was um, Publications Minor League Hitter of the Year last year, and I think something that we haven't talked about is Pittsburgh has environments in which their minor league systems um, fluctuate quite a bit from A-ball to double-A and then to triple-A, which can be a very difficult hitting um, environment. So I like Davis, my, probably my number one, Salamento my number two, Jones my number three, Nick Gonzalez definitely coming in at number four. I think Gonzalez on a good team should be the utility bat. I think I would agree with that. I think I might just put Nick Gonzalez over Jared Jones, but it's very close for me. Let's move on now to some fallers. And the first faller we have is Andy Rodriguez, who actually was just promoted and starting his first game this year. He He's looking to be the, the catcher where Henry Davis is looking like he's going to be playing in the outfield. I will say with Andy Rodriguez, he had an amazing year last year, and I was all in. He bet at 323 with 25 home runs across three different levels, went from high all the way to AAA and batted 455. Um, 
he was just outstanding. I actually drafted him in our dynasty league. And then he came out of the gate slow. He dealt with an injury. I don't really remember what the injury was. I want to say it was a wrist, but I could be wrong. And after coming back, he has zero power. Um, he only has six home runs this year, batting 268. He did get promoted, though. I just don't know if we see any power this year, and I'm curious if the injury is lagging him. And then the other two fallers we have is Bubba Chandler, who is the number eight prospect in the Pittsburgh organization. He was a third-round pick in 2021 for them. Hasn't fared that well. He's only progressed to high A. He's got a 6.79 ERA across 62 and a third innings. And then the last one we have is Travis Swaggerty, who actually got designated for assignment earlier today, coincidence as we were recording this, but at AAA, he was only batting 200 and he was a first round 10th overall draft pick in 2018. And man, that's some bad luck. Um, at 25, Travis Swaggerty has not come to fruition. And I think we've even talked in the past, maybe not on air, but you and me have talked about how Travis Swaggerty was going to be a bust years ago. And man, were we right about that? Yeah, I mean, we talked about Austin Hendricks earlier for the Reds. Same profile, right? Like, it, it's it's just unfortunate. Um, Hendricks was a high school bat on kind of differs from Swaggerty. But the reason I get so frustrated with Eric Brown and the reason why, you know, I lamented on that for so long is because of guys like Travis Swaggerty. Like, what are you doing? Why are you taking guys like this? You know, you're talking about Swaggerty being um, a second-tier college bat from a lower conference. It's like why he's he's not going to come out and, and knock the cover off the ball and he just didn't so definitely a missed opportunity for pittsburgh um i looked at Andy's numbers just to see if he had done anything tonight three strikeouts and four at bats so i think what we're talking about is a guy in fantasy that might be a couple of years we talk about pitchers a lot as like oh they hit their stride after we've given up on them and he might be that guy like he showed a lot of promise last year and i think that's within his profile but it, it may take him until he's 26, 27 at the major league level. And we also have to remind ourselves, especially with Andy, he's switch hitting catcher. Coming up to the major leagues is, is going to be a difficult challenge for him at times, really to kind of control his pitchers at the major league level as well as starting to see hit, uh, pitchers from the right side and the left side. I still like the profile. I just think we have to pump the brakes on him. Um, I think when Pittsburgh really starts to hit their tread and really starts to compete in the NL Central, I think he may be there, but it, it's going to be a couple of years. Bubba Chandler, I'm not too uh, versed on, but Swaggerty, I have been disappointed by for a number of years here. Yeah, that covers the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Let's move on to the final team for the NL Central, and that is the St. Louis Cardinals. And their number one prospect, Mason Wynn, who is known for his cannon of an arm at shortstop. I think he throws like, what, 103, 105. It's just crazy. I think he was in the Futures game last year. I don't think he was in this year's. I also don't know if you can be in multiple future games or not. But he was a second-round uh, draft pick in 2020 for them at 21 years old. Triple A is doing pretty well, 273. He does have 11 home runs, um, striking out a little bit, probably two strikeouts to one walk with 67 strikeouts compared to 35 walks. I was a little pleasantly surprised by him because I didn't think he'd hit for average. I didn't think he'd hit for any power, and he was just a defense-only guy. So I've been pleasantly surprised by him, but I don't think there's crazy – offensive potential here but i think he does just enough to to be good the second riser we have is victor scott the second a speedster he was in this year's futures game i can't find him on the list to pull up what his numbers are so i'll pass on him for now and then the last one we have as a riser is lucan baker who actually made his major league debut this year only came up for seven games bet at 263 but he was always on the home run leaderboard um, when I was checking at AAA, he's batting 319. He's got 22 home runs, so he's tapered off a little bit um, as far as the home run production goes. Victor Scott is the Victor Scott the second. Sorry, is the 22nd overall or wow, can't talk 25th prospect in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. But he's batting 302 at AA. Only one home run, but he's only been there for 12 games. Um, but he has 55 stolen yep. bases on the year, and that is the crazy thing. 
Yeah. 55 stolen base. And that's why he's a riser. Well, and I think we talked about the drafts coverage um, a couple episodes ago, or last episode, and we talked about Battenfield and how excited we were with him falling into the Orioles organization. If Battenfield does this, I think we're going to be talking about him as, oh my God, he's a top 20 you know, fantasy prospect. And Scott's just not getting that kind of notoriety. So I think what you're talking about here is a super big steal and a guy that maybe the industry hasn't fully caught on to yet now the three home well, runs is the thing is yeah he doesn't hit for power he only he only hit two home runs last year he's only got three this year well, so and that's an interesting Crap. note did you know what battenfield's um average ex- exit velocity was with an aluminum bat in college it was I 86 don't. miles an hour wait for who's this battenfield for vanderbilt who the orioles just took oh bradfield uh but bradfield my apologies Henry, yeah okay. um 86 miles per hour. So we have to take two to three miles per hour off with an aluminum bat to a wood bat. So you're talking about 83 miles an hour exit velocity. So we well, were very excited. You can excited. run 100 miles an hour. Well, no, but this is <laughs> this is the conversation, right? Like this, the reason I bring him up is because I still think Scott has value. We've seen it implemented in the major leagues this year. 55 stolen bases plays. Um, hitting 285, getting on base plays. So... I think with the way that we see the organization for St. Louis shake out in the next couple of weeks is really going to be telling us to what we're looking for moving forward. I think a lot of this outfield depth could be moved if they hold on to Arenado and Goldschmidt. Um, you're talking about opportunity for guys like Mason Wynn and, and Victor Scott. Now, Luke and Baker for me is just the next Luke Voigt. Um, I, I like him, but I think he's probably going to bounce around from organization to organization because of the age, because of Goldschmidt. Now, if they trade Goldschmidt, obviously there's things that are going to change, but we also have to wonder, does Jordan Walker move over to first base, right? Is Jordan Walker the first baseman of the future for St. Louis? Um, Mason, one I like a lot, but I, I think he's a guy from fantasy perspective that we're going to be talking about as a streaming option from time to time, and I do think he's definitely defense first. Reminds me a lot uh, of some of the prim, premier gold gloves um, shortstops that we've seen in the league that just have no def- uh, no fantasy relevance. I do fully expect Mason Wynn to be promoted by August 1st because I do think they get rid of Paul DeYoung, and I think Mason Wynn becomes their starting shortstop to finish out the year. I think that is pretty much a lock at this point. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to some fallers here. We have Gordon Graceffo is the biggest faller for me. He was a fifth-round draft pick in 2021, but did pretty well last year. He caught my eye. Um, had 297 ERA across uh, high A and double A, finished out the year with pretty decent numbers, but this year struggled. Um, has okay um, ERA at 367. Um, and, but the reason why he's a faller is because I expected the strikeout rate to be higher 33 strikeouts in 41 and two thirds innings. And I thought he would have ascended to the major leagues in knowing the St. Louis Cardinals' struggles with their starting rotation. That has not come to fruition. The next faller for me is Moises Gomez, the 11th overall prospect for the St. Louis Cardinals. He has been crazy with his power. I think he led all of the minors last year with home runs at 39. He does have the power at 21 home runs so far this year, but his average has completely fallen off. He bet at 294 last year and 266 when he moved to AAA. This year at AAA, he's batting 232, so the average has completely t- fallen off for him. Power's still there. I just worry about, is his hit going to be there? And then lastly is Max Rajic, um, high A starting pitcher. And the reason why he's a faller is because since he's been promoted to high A, he's got a 4.96 ERA. It is only over 16 and a third innings. Um, but also... If I'm being honest, didn't really see anybody else that really stuck out as a faller in the Cardinals organization for me. So had to get a third guy in there, and that's who it's going to be. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what Max can do over an extended period of time. Obviously, you know, the ERA at high A is concerning coming off of the um, Florida League where he had a 189 ERA in 12 games. Definitely got to keep an eye on. He is a UCLA um, graduate. So, you know, you're talking about has some pedigree for college, six uh, round pick though. So clearly other teams didn't want to take a risk on him. Uh, it was interesting. I was reading about some of the signability for the players of this year's draft. 
and it was in regards to the Milwaukee Brewers taking a couple really high-end high school bats and how they were going to have to end up taking college arms after that because they needed the money and they needed the slot bonus. So I, I, th- I think moving forward, I'm going to keep an eye on some of these guys because it reminds me a lot of possibly Chase Hampton, who is more or less just signability guarantee, obviously has absolutely climbed draft, uh, excuse me, prospect rankings this year. Max, on the other hand, has not. So 253 ERA on the year, but again, kind of beating up on easier competition in A-ball. Now that he's on high A, I think we need to watch how he finishes off the season. I do like the innings. He's at 78 innings. This could be a guy if we see the performance uptick, possibly in this rotation, you know, at the end of next season. Yeah, it's definitely somebody to keep an eye on and see how he progresses. He does have limited in- innings at high A, so he could easily turn the ship and get that ERA back down to manageable numbers. And that pretty much covers every team in the NL Central. Hopefully next week we have some trades that have gone down before the deadline. We can talk about some of them, what we're expecting, how everybody's doing as the playoff push comes to a cl- or as the regular season comes to a close. And then next week we'll go over either the NL or AL East prospect risers and fallers. But until next time, we will talk to you guys later. 